You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC number 88. This week, uh, actually, a episode that's uh, dedicated to uh, John Bowring, ASC, who uh, passed away uh, since we did our last podcast. He's a, a well-known cameraman and uh, owner of Lemac here in Australia, and Jason, uh, a friend to us all. Indeed, he uh, owns a, you know, a very sort of user-friendly um, and still powering um, rental house uh, in Sydney and Melbourne called Lemac. Uh, and he was also he was a fixture at uh, NAB, wasn't he, Mike? We saw him many, um, well, at least the couple of years I was there, we saw him, and obviously we saw him very, very uh, shortly before he passed away. Yeah, literally, uh, Jason and I and another uh, director were mucking around with an epic, literally in the uh, Corners Club Lounge at uh, LAX when uh, John came up and started teasing us about how we couldn't leave the bloody epic alone, uh, and he was about to head off on a separate flight to uh, to Hong Kong with his wife, and unfortunately, he never made it home. So uh, our thoughts go out to them. And look, obviously, um, it's just a personal thing for us because we knew John and uh, he was uh, an advocate of basically all sorts of cinematography. I think uh, just an, an enthusiasm for cinematography to be by this way. To yeah, describe. absolutely. A gearhead. And who is it? Like, uh, un- unlike a lot of other rental houses, he was uh, a, the face uh, of the rental house. Literally, he could always be, you know, he was actually in touch with the company, unlike uh, some other places. So look, um, we uh, didn't do a RC specifically last week because we had a couple of things happening. Firstly, we had the NAB Live RC, uh, which was uh, <laughs> went for hours. Uh, but also, Jason, you uh, guested on our FX podcast where we did a rundown of all the stuff we saw from NAB. And so obviously that covered a bit of RC kind of ground, but that was our trip back uh, across the desert, which was kind of a lot of fun, wasn't it? Yeah, I loved that chat, actually. It was really interesting because it was, I suppose... Unlike, I guess, a lot of chats, sometimes we've got this sort of a hard out or we've got, you know, somewhere to be or the schedule, you know, it was kind of interesting that uh, you had this sort of a chat with essentially you didn't finish talking until you had nothing left to say. We basically had the long road to cover and so it was sort of quite an interesting sort of um, in-depth chat, I suppose, that you could just rat hole our way um, across Nevada. Yeah, and that uh, that discussion as we left Vegas uh, with uh, Jeff Huser, obviously one of the co-founders of FX Guide, is up on the uh, FX Guide website. But it's not an RC podcast, it's an FX podcast. No, but so it now, would definitely be of interest to our listeners for sure. Call that a sort of an, a, a sort of um, de facto um, RC episode anyway, I think. That being said, we're going to discuss a bit of uh, news from uh, the NAB trade show today. Uh, and then we're going to uh, do a really interesting thing in the Red Room. We're going to talk to Tyler Ginter and a bunch of guys who worked on the first Sony F3 S-Log test. Now, you've, you've probably seen this around the net. Uh, Next Pictures, or Next Level Pictures, sorry, uh, did a test with um, a bunch of people sponsoring them, basically, to just shoot some S-Log on the F3. So we're going to come up to that uh, chat and speak to those guys uh, later in the show. But, Jace, let's first head to the newsroom. And now... The RC News. Okay, so the first piece of news, Jace, is probably just a recount of what happened, I guess, uh, at NAB. And yeah. not a lot of news out of Canon. There were some PL mounts, but really very quiet show for Canon, as it was pretty quiet for Sony, though they had, what, the, uh, the new 4K or 8K, 4K uh, camera. Well, we should definitely touch on that, of course, because we... Uh uh, had a bit of a glimpse um, uh, underneath the kimono, I suppose, and uh, that was quite, uh, it was way more uh, impressive than I had imagined. 
Actually, you know what I found really impressive, as, as we said in that other podcast, was that uh, OLED, the 4K, what was it, 52-inch, was it, or 40-inch? Uh, it wasn't very big, I don't think. 40, it, I think it was, it was a 42, I think, yeah, 42-inch yeah. OLED, uh, OLED 4K screen. But that just was gorgeous, wasn't it? That was outstanding, and I'm sort of, you know, I mean... You know, I sort of keep thinking of that sort of chart that says, you know, you have to be a certain distance from a screen to be able to tell the difference between even 720p and, you know, 1080 or the, tell the difference even from a DVD to a Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, if anyone's in doubt of the fact that, uh, you know, 4K, who needs it, then they need to see this screen if it comes to a, a, a town near you. It was quite... It was quite amazing. I mean, no, the, the imagery, obviously, it's, it's that sort of thing sometimes where you sort of you know want to sell a, a screen at uh, uh, the big box store and they put a nice crisp Pixar film up. There was some really nice, um, very impressive animation being played on it. But nonetheless, you could definitely tell it was uh, quite a stunning difference. Now, that was being shown in a private room uh, that was a private presentation of this 4K, 8K, 4K, but let's call it 4K camera of Sony's. So we discussed that OLED on the on the FX podcast. So let's discuss mm. the camera now. Um, the camera is what well, actually I found out it's a little lighter, isn't it, than the F thirty five? Oh, is it? It's about the same size. I didn't even bother to look at the weight because <laughs> it looks it just looks just as heavy as F thirty five. I mean, it is definitely it's in know, the zone. It, it's in the zone. It's in the F thirty five zone. So it's not like there's been any massive reduction of that. Although there is a, uh, I guess, a nod to the. Um, the knowledge that you know it is not a uh, not a lightweight, in so much as they have this, uh, I guess, this T cable system where you can buy a like a, a block mounting system. Essentially, take the whole optics block out and mount that optics block into a separate sort of adapter, and then run a um, I say up to maybe about thirty feet or so um, T cable or telescope cable to um, essentially detach the lens and the optics block from the, the camera body itself. Yeah, it doesn't really solve Steadicam and a bunch of other things that well, though, does it? Really? No, not really. I suppose somebody, a grip with a backpack could be sort of running around with you. It's not entirely solved. It certainly it makes things a little bit easier for the 3D, but then I guess at the other end of a crane, you're still going to have, um, you know, the two back ends of an F35. But uh, look, you know, that it, this is, I guess, what I alluded to in the podcast, having seen having seen the imagery, and I really just expect it to be, you know, a bit sort of like me too, a bit footage to be just like, you know, you know okay, well, we now do 4K. That's great, terrific. Um, but honestly, there is something, I think you probably have to agree, Mike, there's something about the imagery that comes out of this camera. And it, I mean, it may not just be necessarily the resolution, although as we've seen, that is quite evident. But there's something about the quality of the light and however it's being processed it just has a very classy very smooth silky look and you know from looking at the behind the scenes of some of that footage it's very pretty minimal um you know lighting and pretty minimal kind of uh you know being affected by like you know a thousand a thousand truckloads of, of lighting gear gone into these shots it's all quite lit quite nicely and simply but uh, man it has a really gorgeous painterly kind of what was it an 800 iso yeah. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, 800. Yep, that's what they say. Sony's but, promised like, to give us some uh, slides and stuff that we can post showing the new CMOS because it's kind of a honeycomb CMOS as opposed to being a, a a row of columns and rows of sort of lining up pixels. They kind of offset each row so that it's much more of a honeycomb look. Mm, but that's we interesting. Can't, we couldn't take any photos when we were there. They have promised us some photos. And the, actually, I will say this. 
I feel, anyway, Sony is chalk and cheese in the last five years between being unhelpful and extremely helpful. So um, yeah. I'm absolutely sure that'll be coming. Uh, people are just getting back, I think, from Easter and stuff. So once we get that, um, we'll post that. Yeah, absolutely. That's obviously was their their trick to you know counteract the whole what they see a regular 4K from other companies <clears throat> as being not true 4K. So clearly, when you see these bear patterns, that the, their idea is to make it. They, they uh, had red in their sights. Let's face it. I mean, yeah, they, absolutely. They were making comments about people buying in chips from Israel versus them actually making their own chips, and there were quite a lot of sort of comments for a Sony that were quite. Normally, Sony ignores everybody else and plays their own game, but. Sony was not necessarily doing that. But having said that, um, they, they look, just that uh, OLED validated red, <laughs> ironically. Well, if nothing Sony. else, it certainly validated 4K for me, which obviously yeah. takes us back to some of the... Um... Now, interestingly, there's going to be... Uh, I just keep hearing from two or three sources now read the price of this camera. There's definitely not been announced, but I, I have a feeling that we're in for an interesting surprise there price-wise that would sort of maybe undo the what the norm of what we're used to with these ends of cameras. But we'll just have to sort of sit on that and see because, you know, this is still being evolved, but uh, multiple sources I now hear of just sort of mumbling about prices that uh, no, are I've heard, looking I've heard the very same. interesting. Very I, was on, I was on Twit at NAB, if you remember. And Alex Lindsay guessed at the price of that camera, and he guessed at one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand. And I think Alex is way over. Um, so well, that's where the F thirty five originally stood, and then yes. obviously as Red evolved, they um, I guess you probably still could buy an F thirty five. They dropped down to about ninety five for an F thirty five. So who we'll knows? See. Yeah, we'll okay. see. Did you see anything new, by the way, from Panavision? Because we haven't spoken about that, but I no. didn't. No, I had a good chat at your FX PhD party actually with uh, someone quite reasonably up high with, in, in Sony and um, we sort of discussed that but there wasn't really anything he knew of that we or anything that I'd seen. No, there was sort of significantly quiet from Panavision. Not that Panavision ever, I believe, ever sort of exhibit or ever have anything on the stands too much at, at NAB anyway. But um, no, not. Not uh, not as such. I, 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 I'd love to think that they're developing something, but I've not heard anything yet. It's a very tough market for them to now come back into, um, as we will allude to later on when we start to talk about F3, but certainly with, with Alexa, what we saw with the... Um, with the you know the Secudo shout out uh, shootouts that was uh, you know Alexa has raised the bar particularly with the and I've got uh, to say when we too. you filmed an episode for FX Guide TV on the Alexa booth in what we called the Alexa brothel, um, but what was really interesting about that is that when we went back uh, during the main show it opened it was like twelve deep at that booth wasn't yeah. it. Yeah, it was it was huge hugely it was area. massive busy. And definitely, I mean you they didn't quite have that arrangement of stand last year, but if you remember that stand, there was a couple of moments there. I remember when the Alexa was sort of, you know, launched and um I do remember um uh, Rodney Charters and Bloom and, you know, Lafayette and there was all this whole sort of clump of of um uh, of people that were all sort of clamoring around the Alexa. But as, uh, on on the whole it was, you know, a, it was a bubbling away stand. But this year was uh, completely different. Uh, it's really in stark contrast to IBC. In IBC, there was like, you know, a dozen people around the camera. Here, it was a dozen deep. I mean, I think yeah. I think it was one of the most buzzy camera stands. It at, was, uh, absolutely. I'll actually go further and say there were times that it was considerably buzzier than Red. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, Red's one was a bit more contained than it was inside. But yes, I completely, completely agree. There was... Uh, 
it was easily like, you know, oh, let's come back another time kind of uh, sort of deal. It was definitely no way could even get in there even to talk to anybody but so obviously they had launched a lot of stuff but it was um, great that you got that interview before the show because you got to talk to them kind of in a quiet environment we actually got to really um sort of see yeah. what and and i think you know the alexa m and stuff that's all really interesting stuff i don't know again i, I really am a bit down on tethered cameras i get that it works for 3d to split the rigs in half and it's yep. better than nothing but i can't get around the fact that I just want the Alexa to be half the size full stop, not half the size with the recording pack off the back. True, true. Although I think someone alluded to today or a couple of days ago on Red User, you, know, you start stacking all the all the um, modules on the back of an Epic and it's, it's started to, starting to look a bit Alexa-ish as well. But uh, Absolutely, but isn't that an we option? We don't have though? that luxury that, at the moment, but you have the option. It's That's an option, right. yeah. Exactly. And also you, that M was without a battery pack, which has to be up at the camera end as I understand it. Yeah, That's right. So. So let's so, discuss Red's announcements. Uh, Red Dragon, mm-hmm. 2012, the new chip. Yep, by end of 2012, I guess, is uh, upgrade to Monstro, in inverted commas. So no real word on what that actually alludes to, although we did hear uh, around the stand that that meant full frame. I can only hope it means full frame. By the time that rolls out and we have uh, um, active Canon uh, mounts. Uh, that Somebody explained to me to that sense. the reason that it was Red Dragon is that, yes, they're the Monstro chips, but it's the first of the Montrose, Monstro, which is called Red Dragon, if that makes Good. sense. Which so, alludes to hopefully bigger than that. If, yeah, if, there's, a, if, there's if, a line if, of Monstro. Right. And oh, by the way, the first one's called Red Dragon. Yeah. Um, and we teased out of uh, Ted, um, out of Jim, this idea of a domestic 4K laser projector, which personally... I'm thrilled to death to hear about. I mean, I just thought that was incredibly interesting. Yeah, well, that's right. First of all, the fact that they are aiming at the domestic market. And second of all, when they mentioned 4K, which didn't really sort of click until again that we saw the, um, um, you know, the the Sony 4K, that, again, that sort of validated the whole thing as being worth having. Lord knows what it's going to cost. But, uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't even know how what a laser projector is, but damn. <laughs> lasers. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds cool. What do you reckon... Uh, what do you reckon a domestic line in the sand is? I, I would say a domestic line in the sand is 10K. Like anything under 10K you could reasonably claim is domestic, even though, of course, most people would be like horrified to think you'd spend 10 grand on a projector. And anything above that is, is that what you think? But if somebody says well, domestic. Yes, I guess, I guess the rarefied atmosphere at red, the, uh, dom- the word domestic, you know, probably has a different meaning perhaps uh, than, than around these parts. But, or, or do you uh, think it's 5K? No, but seriously, when somebody says that, like it's aimed at more of a domestic say 5K. market. Yeah, 5K? Okay, 5K. I would say 5K, um, given the fact that um, I suppose, you know, the, the, the Red Ray Pro is going to be more than that, right? The Red Ray Pro is going to be 10 grand, isn't it? Well, under well under 10K is the official line. Uh, but I, again, probably like you, Mike, have heard a couple of sources saying it's around the 7K mark, which would sort of fit with that 10K. Um, obviously, that is not a domestic piece of kit, right? This is so there's sub- the Red Ray that is the domestic one, which would lend credence to your under 5 theory, right, as a rule yeah, of which- thumb. Again, there's no real price point for that, but has been, again, many mentions of it being, uh, you know, sub-$1,000 for... Uh, I'm still yet to sort of work out how that would work. I guess that is the player for, you know, that you'd need that to hook that up to your uh, 4K red laser projector. Yeah, I think those still go hand-in-hand. Hand. It's not much mm. fun having a 4K laser projector if yeah. you've got nothing to attach to it. 
Exactly, rather than having sort of you know four HD sync synced together, four HD um, decks. Yeah, decks. Yeah, exactly. I did also so, hear that the Red Ray codec is still astonishingly low because it's just a playback codec and not a uh, editing codec. That the data uh, yeah, rates on that is somewhere, really, really, slow, maybe, really low. Yeah, somewhere demonstrated on the stand, or I kept hoping that when we saw the when it came to the end of the tattoo film that they were going to say, and that was all playing off. It was this thumb that, drive. That, well, it wasn't on a thumb drive, but that was playing off Red Ray. Off Red Ray, domestic Red Ray. Uh, no, Red Ray Pro. But Red I, Ray Pro. I understand it, yeah. Sure. And you're right, there was one in the booth that was meant to be playing, but I, for that love of anything, got distracted whenever I went in that booth. That's what I heard, that the Red Ray, domestic version of Red Ray was shown on the booth, but, you know, the booth was a little bit hard to sort of get anything out of, to be honest. It was a terrific place to sort of wander around, but a little light on info. Um, but a Red Ray, domestic Red Ray with uh, 4K footage playing off uh, a USB thumb drive, which is yeah, interesting. And I guess we, there was nothing more confusing or more... Uh, in that category of it was on the red booth, but for the love of anything, I couldn't get a straight, uh, clean sample of what was going on, was that the iPad Mission Control app. Yeah. So even now, with your contacts and mine and scanning red user and talking to people and me just speaking to people that also are red users that were there on the day, do you have a super clear idea what the iPad mission control is and how it works? I don't have a super clear, I have a reasonable overview of what it would work, what, what it's going to be able to do. Well, now, let's give us our summary then. Okay, well, this is my summary and maybe we're all wrong. I didn't have a hands-on, um, you know, run-through with it, although people were getting that happen. That was happening on the stand. It just didn't happen to, you know, the stars didn't quite align when we were there. So, obviously, so wireless from the Epic, from my understanding, and we're yet to get clarification on this, is there's obviously there's two versions of Wi-Fi or there's two kind of protocols of, um, you call it sort of 902, Two one zero, whatever you call it, you know. Of Wi-Fi, I don't believe <laughs> that's the actual specification. But oh, um, Jace, I have a late breaking news. Like we need a breaking news thing. So a second ago, we were saying that we were trying to get some clarification on what was going on with the stuff to do with the iPad remote. Yeah, exactly. Well, I have those answers for you. So as we've been Squirreling away here, we've been, uh, my producer's been feeding me with stuff. So here's a set of questions and answers directly back from Red that may clarify some of this stuff for us. Okay, first thing, a bunch of people have been asking, asking is the Red Remote, Red Mote, a Wi-Fi device? Um, and the answer is it's not. It's not Wi-Fi. It's working on Red Link, which is a dedicated mesh network. It has very low latency, and it's primarily meant just for command and control. So it's not right. a, a thing designed for streaming out uh, vision. But it does mean that it's not just straight Wi-Fi and it's not going to appear on a laptop as a camera will suddenly appear um, as a uh, thing. Now, the Wi-Fi is not on the brain and it's going to be on a module. So Ah. the Wi-Fi is not built into the base brain. Gotcha. Um, The uh, Mission Control app isn't available quite yet. Um, But when it does come out, there was some question as, well, will any of the current Epic support it? Because, you know, they've obviously out before it, would you have to swap your hardware in to get your brain repaired or fixed or adjusted or upgraded? And the answer is absolutely no. There's no upgrade needed to your current brain. So when this app does come out, the brains that are all out there right now uh, will be able to use it. There will be no like, oh, I rented one, but it was pre-upgrade 
pre-CBS buyout uh, mod type stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, weird Wayne's World reference there. Now, at yeah. NAB, we'd said that it was cabled because the tent suffered from massive NAB radio interference. As you said, it's a soup. Um, yeah. That's absolutely true. It was uh, Ethernet out to a Wi-Fi switch at um, or a sort of a thingo switch at uh, NAB for exactly that reason. Um, also, we, I guess, were, we've shot it in the, in the show notes and we were discussing this app as being something that controls the camera but doesn't include this live feed or monitoring that some people hope that it would. They you know, have to feed from the camera to their laptop. Yeah. Um, that isn't what's happening. Now, Teradex make that because it takes the HDSDI, goes up to a little Wi-Fi thing, and you can get it on your iPad, and we had that working at NAB. This is really designed as a control device uh, and so ideally what you would have is an HDA, HD SDI monitor feed. Now, that could be a cable feed or it could be a feed that is going up to a Teradek or whatever and going mm. over to a big broadcast monitor, a, a, a pad or whatever. But if you then wanted to control your camera, this is what it would do. It would be basically able to control all the settings on it um, well, command and control is the best way to describe it. And those things would be reflected by the separate HD SDI stream that's coming out. Right. And so while many of us may wish they were one and the same thing, they're actually quite different, both at a implementation level, at a hardware level, and at a at a kind of a how they designed it in the first place level as far as this uh, red link goes. It's hard stuff. Yeah. Now, with the final question, which I think is the, um, the tough one, is uh, latency because the whole point of our concern, and you were saying with this stuff often comes out, it's not quite fast enough and it gets better and stuff. Um, and the answer back from Red is it is fairly responsive right now. And the first version, while a little rough, will improve. But already at the first version, it is actually quite responsive. So it's because if it wasn't responsive, it wouldn't be useful. Yeah, it looked pretty responsive in the in the tent. Yeah, and that and oh. there you go. So those are the answers straight back from Excellent. Red. And, oh, thank uh, you, Red. We really appreciate them. Uh, for doing that, and our producers for feeding that through. I love it when stories break while we're on air, but it's um, <laughs> anyway. Excellent. Uh, also published this week is been the uh, Epic Operations Guide, by the way. So if you are interested in um, stuff to do with the Epic's functions that we're talking about, these things like uh, you know adjusting the HDRX and all that kind of stuff, uh, it is actually remarkably um, well large document. Actually, it's not like a you know twelve page flyer. Um, yeah, it's yeah. the draft, but it's the operational guide, and it's available it's for download as a PDF. What's really nice, I think, is quite interesting to see the uh, you know they, in, in the old red in the red one days they had these kind of flow charts of the of the menus. I mean, they, again, they've still got that up the back of the up at the back of the manual that you can sort of see. Although the menu system of the you know Epic is something that that we've been happily working with for weeks without having ever had a manual <laughs> so um but it's still great to be able to see what is there if you if you dig around and you know obviously this stuff is um reasonably up to date but this stuff's literally is changing every 5 minutes so since NAB Jim has actually put out a clarification on the Epic and Scarlet production and I think we should refer to that Jace because it's um it it was the hope of many that the X's would start shipping before NAB. And to my best of my knowledge, none of the X's did start shipping before NAB. Um, yeah. And it was still on M's. Do you want to mention what was posted by, uh, by Jim? Okay. Well, look at this stage, uh, it's looking like, um, 
but not really going to see X's, it, it, they're saying, until uh, June. Let me just reread this. Uh, but, yeah, I believe it's till June now that obviously they're rapidly trying to find other um, manufacturers to try and find these last sort of few couple of percent of parts. But, and interestingly, uh, in the same comment, he points to the fact that Scarlet has a lens component that's coming from Japan, which makes that kind of almost more of an issue. So the Scarlet delay is not necessarily June. The Scarlet delay could be worse. We, we just don't know that it may take them longer to resolve that. Um, so we had a Scarlet at NAB. We were playing with it and shot some stuff with it, and I looked at that material, and it's fine. How was um, it? It was fine. I mean, you know, it was uh, obviously not the best lit material because it was just on the trade show floor. But, uh, you know, we fully recorded it. I formatted the card. I did it myself. It wasn't like a, a mock-up by somebody else. We shot yeah. some stuff. We handed it out to people in the crowd who shot some stuff. And then we got the uh, camera back and, and I've been processing it. So it all looks fine. Um, and yet that Scarlet... Uh, which is a fixed lens scarlet. It's essentially uh, a scarlet. It's a scarlet M, I guess. I mean, even if they wanted to, I suppose they potentially could do the same deal. They could start doing scarlet M's. They'd be probably more yeah. expensive, obviously, but uh, and people will probably buy them. But uh, it's probably going to be a bit cost prohibitive, considering you know the other cameras that are that are out there these days. Well, let me come back to the scarlet in one second. I just want to mention one other thing that was put out, and I should have mentioned it before I started going on about scarlet, which is that they've put out the epic frame rates, or at least the current spec of what the epic frame rates will be. Yeah. So my epic at the moment will actually run 2K, 4K, 5K. It doesn't get down to 720. Um, but So this is sort of a soon-to-be-released version of the firmware for the epic. This isn't exactly what it's doing right now. If you walked into a rental shop today, you wouldn't be able to get this, but it's yeah. what is expected, you know, RSN which is 5K at um, either 2.4 at 120 frames, what we're doing now, or quad HD, which is obviously a great format for uh, for shooting at, being mm. obviously an easy convert for 1920 by 1080, at up to 127 frames a second. Now, none of these are burst rates. These are just sustained shooting rates. Um, yeah. And then 4K... And That's right. Just... There was that burst rate, wasn't there? That was uh, a long time It's more scality. Mm, um, yeah, but let's just yeah, leave the, let's right. just leave it at two point four to keep life simple. So four K one hundred and fifty frames, three K two hundred frames, two K three hundred frames, and at seven twenty p three hundred and sixty frames a second. Now, yeah. these I are all actually, at two point four. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I actually think that uh, well, except for the last one, I actually think that seven twenty p may be pushing it too hard. I actually don't think you're going to want to crop 720p out of the sensor. I could be wrong, but yeah. from tests that I've done, uh, it gets, like, you, I actually think it's, you want to still oversample. So if you yeah. wanted 720p, I would still want to shoot higher than 720p and then down rest to 720p. Yeah. I don't think 720p itself is going to, or at least you're really going to start pushing some of the lenses to hold yeah, up. Yeah, that's that the thing. Kind of you're crop. pushing the glass. You're blowing up an image, not just electronically, but obviously it's an optical crop yeah. issue as well you know it definitely will, i just don't does, think it's going to look soft, that good yeah. Yeah, I, I really don't because i shot some stuff and it looked great it looked amazing at 5k it looked good at 4k it looked okay at 1920 by 1080 I'm, i was really really happy with it but by the time i looked at it at 720 i was like yeah <laughs> bit ropey it starts to get pretty critical on your focus as it well. it really almost. becomes super critical now this was uh wide on a wide lens so sh- and it was lots of light so it should have been okay but everything yeah, now true. becomes a factor the quality mm-hmm. of your variable nds uh the quality of the yeah. calibration of the lens everything is um is going to make it maybe slightly less than what you want it to be so I, i'm a little nervous about the 720p i'm not saying you can't do it but having said that 
2K at 300 frames a second would still be pretty cool. I'm probably most excited by 3K at 200 frames a second because... Yeah, absolutely. Um, or even 4K because essentially that's cropping it down to the same field of view as a Red 1 because obviously the 5K Epic yeah. is slightly wider. And of course we had to go slightly much, larger much sensor. zoomed into that 2K crop to get up to high frame rates on the Epic. Yeah. I just like it if I don't notice. So if someone gets, says, okay, we can do 150 at 4K, I go, yeah, fair enough. So obviously the uh, the 16 by 9 numbers are going to be about 20%, 20% less than that because you then jump to essentially full frame because the 2.4 um, ratio is a bit of a crop top and bottom. So it's a little bit more information. So instead of you know 5K uh, being 120 frames, it jumps down to 100 or so at uh, 5K full frame or 5K 16 by 9. Well, now, we're going to get back to discussing gear uh, after the interview, but I want to just have a bit of a discussion with you, Jace, before we go to the interview, because I want to set up a couple of things, and I'm just basically curious for your, your point of view. So we were discussing Scarlet. Now, one of the things we saw at NAB was a shootout of a bunch of different cameras, and in a minute, in the Red Room, we're going to have a discussion of the F3. Now, the F3 discussion that's coming up later in the show mm. is is separate to that uh, preview shootout we saw because it's shooting S-Log, so that's really significant. Even before it was shooting S-Log, the, S- the F3 Sony performed really, really well uh, in, the, um, in the shootout, as it were. And, it, and I should point out, this wasn't a definitive, or rather it wasn't a meant to be, uh, we are going to declare a winner, the clarity of shootout. It wasn't meant to be, this is the best camera. It was very sensible, level-headed. Look, here are a range of issues. Here are a range of cameras and how they perform under these things. Different cameras, different budgets, different cameras, different jobs, different cameras different camera people again just helping you choose your horse for your course but if you were to summarize your position and mine as we did in that other podcast it was clear to us that the alexa was great and the f3 were great um epic wasn't included in the test indeed yeah it sort of you know highlighted that was quite amazing and how i guess for me probably the three things was also the fact that film Although it's obviously great in the highlights that the shadows were, by comparison, it was like 400 or so ISO stock, um, ASA stock, was um, no, nowhere near as good as uh, some of the other digital cameras can do down in, in the low end of town. Yeah, and we should give a plug to the guys that did the, um, the shootout before we go any further because they were very kind in letting us in. Absolutely, Bob Prime's AASC, um, and obviously Zakudo, who independently, you know, funded it and organised it. But uh, you know, big huge shout out to Steve Weiss and and uh, the guys at Zakudo for for doing that because it was just was it was impressively done. It was a lot. Anyone who's done any sort of minimal amount of tests, just comparing one or two cameras on one or two functions, uh, will understand how massively how much of a pain in the ass any sort of camera test or comparison is. And I'm so, normally pretty cynical these things and i'm very quick to rip them apart but they did have a like a i forgot the name they used it was like a camera hero or a camera champion or something for each camera so there was somebody that you know was in the corner of the f3 and or in the corner of the f35 or in the corner of the red to try and get the best out of it so it wasn't like some alexa guy trying to use a red and not doing it properly and you know it wasn't a very fair test because you didn't even do it properly now there are a million ways you can criticize these things and so i think the best thing to do is to just look they mean something they just don't mean everything um so if you can view it that way then i think they're really helpful 
And in that, it respect, is going to come out on DVD and stuff later on. They do have a plan to sort of publish it beyond yeah. the sort of screenings, and you know, you can sort of judge it literally, obviously, in in, in Blu-ray rather. You can judge it in HD. But, but there's, uh, no, there's no doubt in my mind that no. that people stack up Alexa versus Epic at the moment. That's just yeah. the kind of. So my question to you, before we get to an S-log comparison, is to just get some perspective on your sort of uh, sense of F3, which you've shot with, versus mm-hmm. Scarlet, which you've only minimally shot with. But obviously, I mean, is that going to be a, a kind of a thing, the F3 versus oh. Scarlet? Here's my, my, I guess my, my sort of question. I and I know, I know, obviously, Scarlet will find a place, it will find a home, and it will find friends. But I think it's what's hard is, is you've you've got a camera. I'm talking about Scarlet. You've got a camera that is aimed at the sort of indie kind of run and gun or reality TV kind of crowd. Yet the back end of it is just complete, just streets ahead away. It's just miles away from where they want to be post-wise. You know, you've got a camera that's designed to be sort of you know simple doco run and gun. Yet, uh, you know, I just I just don't know how it sits post-wise at the back end of it. The camera's going to be terrific, and you know, be able to sort of. It's just got ca- it's got capabilities beyond what that market really needs or can or can put up with i know again there's definitely going to be a sector of that market who was is absolutely clamoring for it and is ready to punch their ipod or water or car radio at this second but i just it just seems now having obviously dealt with the epic and dealt with you know the post and the amount of gigabytes that you generate quite quickly and, and um admittedly it's a slightly lower res sensor but i just i don't know now how having dealt with the post side of things admittedly without red rocket cards but how that's going to fit in with the way reality tv or doco or run and gun or indie films work i just so I, by definition know, which now, I, I guess Scarlet then, is two-thirds inch right by, by definition yeah. if, you, yeah. if you so it's so for so so when Scarlet was announced two-third inch cameras um were hundreds of thousands of dollars and the yeah. bee's knees and exactly, we're talking like F950 like, um, and stuff like that. Well, yeah, but even the um, the precursor to the F35, right? The F23 was a yes. really expensive, really expensive camera that had a two thirds inch sensor. That's right. That's it true. feels though that in the time between when Red announced Scarlet, when that Scarlet spec would have been jaw dropping, to today when Scarlet isn't out and the F3 is out, that yeah. Scarlet is. F- struggling more to have its own super identity like obviously absolutely and the fs100 even since literally every month or two there's something new the s log the f you know and maybe this is the price that red announcing its plan so far in advance but well yeah i guess it well it's just the price of of you know just delays the stuff moves so quickly and uh, scarlet is still not out potentially you know if we didn't see scarlet for another year who would be surprised i think you know well if we didn't see scarlet for another year you'd have to be wondering if it was going to be stillborn because the (laughs) i'm serious that's an excellent analogy but sad because uh here's the thing like i'm a as you know very big fan of the epic the fixed lens nature of the Scarlet is terrific in some applications like 3D. But for a bunch of other people that have gone over to SLRs, they want to be able to put on funky lenses. Yeah. So the fixed lens Scarlet becomes this kind of weird... It, it feels like it belongs in a 
fight with a P2 where it can kick its butt. But yeah. it doesn't feel like it's going to kick the butt of an F3, especially as the F3 interchangeable lenses could be PL but could be other things. Yeah, well, the F3 again has its own battles with the PL lens. You know, again, you're battling, you know, the budgets of where it exists. You've got a camera that's sort of, I guess, where something like F3, AF100, FS100, all of those cameras are sort of fitting in with the market they're intended to. Is the back end, is the post, is the pull out the memory card and, and then edit, you know, literally. While while the camera is still powering itself down, you know it's. But what about if I what about if I didn't focus on the fixed lens and focused on the the non fixed lens and I put a Canon mount on it? So what if I said to you, okay, here's a Canon yeah. mount, Scarlet, yeah. and all you SLR people that have been comfortable with shooting ninety twenty by ten eighty and having, yeah. so you're going to lose what you're going to lose depth of field because you don't going to have the shallow depth of field on a two thirty yeah. inch sensor. Your but field gonna, of view is going to be wrong completely and you're going to have to start looking for wider wider glass a 16 yeah, but what about a 7d or a what's the crop factor like a 1.8 crop i mean 1.6 or so for 1.6 for a 7d and then i guess times two for a scarlet uh no times more than times two times two compared to say a red one half half of say a red one so i guess my thing is though that if you were if you weren't Okay, so depth of field is one thing that you can pay a price on. Yeah. But you're going to get higher than 1920 by 1080 and you get like 3K. You're going to get high frame rates, which you certainly don't get out of an SLR. If Canon didn't advance, if Nikon didn't advance to a better than 8-bit, stupidly compressed, line-dropped yep. thing, if you got more latitude, which of course the HDRX is going to give you, could you move the game to being a no longer a shallow depth of field game and being a latitude high-res, filmic, nice quality game, or is the... Well, yes, latitude and sort of, to some degree, frame rates uh, uh, and raw. And I, that's where I think I'm just not quite sure where it sits because the latitude, obviously, as we know, comes with a post price. And I just don't know how that post world fits with the world that Scarlet's intended to, uh, intended for. It seems, you know, that whole HDRX stuff, do people really, in the run-and-gun shoot it shoot you know shoot two hours before lunchtime kind of world is the editor going to really just want to top himself by day two uh i just not you know i'm i just for me how i'm sort of trying to justify i'm struggling to find where it it fits uh, and frame rates you can look at fs100 and f3 and all that sort of stuff they'll gen they're up to sort of 60 you know frames a second now and 1080p in the case of the fs100 um so to that that satisfies an awful lot of, of people that literally up until now have had you know not much choice i suppose or i guess you had a bit bit of overcrank choice with ex1s and ex3s and stuff like that but um you know i'm just finding that there're very little advantages now um yeah, I just you know, and obviously FS one hundred and and uh, stuff like that. You can put all, you can pretty much put any mount you want on it and not restrict it. I mean, I love you know, if you pick up the Scarlet, it's gorgeous, it's fabulous, it's very clever, and it's got the smart ring, and you know, it's it's all in one camera, and it, you know, it's it's clever. But I just, I don't, I just, I think it's 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 little lifeboat is drifting off to the sunset, really. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's the size of the sensor that really is the 
Here's the thing there, isn't it? I mean, if it's... Well, that's what's, could, the ch- that's what started this whole revolution. Else. I could deal with it? everything else if the size of the sensor was bigger. I could argue with you that if you put cannon glass on a scarlet that had a, you know, large sensor and it, yeah. it didn't do some of the other stuff that... Yeah. Uh, that Epic did, and it was yeah. cheaper, obviously. Um, yeah. But at some point... That window, yeah, the window where it was cheaper, where the bang for buck, you know, was, you know, when it was, it was 3K for 3K, and it was competing against uh, F23, which they don't even make F23s anymore, and all the F23s have generally been converted over to F35s anyway. Uh, even that end of the market has sort of evolved away from two-thirds. Um, uh, yes, the frame rate, terrific. I just I think the other advantage left over is raw and you know raw and and HDR and I don't see that there's going to be It's certainly not going to compete in the in the hybrid DSLR no. as in SLR stills motion world because no one is going to want to shoot stills on a 2/3 inch for serious photography they're going to happily shoot yeah. for sure you know, absolutely whatever. they're not so, going to want to have that lower resolution Three K um, so still as a still isn't isn't great. See, the thing I'm worried about is that there's a lot of yearning for a Scarlet because it so looks like an Epic that it feels like you're getting a smaller Epic. Um, yeah, and yeah, it is definitely feels smaller. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know if it's going to satisfy the smaller Epic market because yeah, the smaller Epic crowd. Um, I, I feel like. Okay, so let's shift gear now and look at the F3. The F3's S-Log is giving it... An, now, it's not a free upgrade. Like it's a, you've got to pay for it. But it's yeah. giving it like another, what, stop and a half latitude. Which... Interestingly, it is, yes. Obviously, even, even the tests that we saw for the shootout were not in, the, in this mode. But I think they were doing 4-2... 4-2... 0. They're doing 4-2-2? No, 4-2-0, I think. Okay, yeah, 4-2-0. So, I think. Um, I yeah, I'm not sure whether they were doing. They were doing the. They were recording four two. Oh right, two. to the. They were recording yeah. to an external recorder, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, they might but have been not using yep. the S log. Yep. Yeah. You're right. So, but even those those results were impressive. Obviously, in the highlights, it couldn't really compete um, against stuff like Alexa, and obviously in fil- with uh, with film. But uh, again, everything else in terms of sharpness and uh, you know the resolution, the highlights, rolling shutter. Uh, sorry, shadow detail, exposure, you know, there's, it was really, Ros, very impressively uh, punching above its weight. But, um, yeah, obviously since these, these tests, uh, I guess this is 444 then through the S-Log, is that yep. right, Mike? Yep. Uh, is, well, I'm, I'm quite, quite blown away, actually. I mean, I'd love to see some more tests from, and some more different, you know, in different environments and shot with different people, but uh, I've, Sort of from on the face of it, the before and after. Um, admittedly, the before it looks a little bit overexposed. But when uh, you shot compulsion, which was uh, basically all the Zeiss lenses, so you had forty yeah. mil ultra prime and super speeds and with stuff, a pre-production right? camera, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you produce some yeah, nice was, bloody footage. Yeah. yeah, no, it was great. I mean, again, I suppose I'm used to sort of shooting DSLR, and I was kind of you know used to knowing what to avoid highlight-wise and stuff, you know, so you kind of, you know, pull your punches a little bit that way. So I kind of could protect myself from it looking too video. But, yeah, absolutely, even just that, even that early days, especially low lights, it was amazing. Now, what this does is adding a much more filmic um, sort of, I guess, you know, uh, the sort of mids are a lot more detailed there in the mids 
And uh, as I say, giving another stop, uh, particularly into seeing into what looks like a bit more stops. Uh, so, another, what did you, so when you were shooting with the, the, the PMW F3 prototype camera, yeah, what was it you missed or what, what was it you were like, what was the thing that was it? Because mm. you've shot with uh, Epic in a similar environment, you've yep. shot with an SLR in a similar environment. Yep. Was it highlight protection? Was it slow frame rates? Was it shallow depth of field? Was, it, was there anything that you sort of went, ooh? Well, two, I suppose two things probably would be a bit more highlight protection. Uh, definitely it nails it in the low noise. You can shoot in, you know, before you can see a hand in front of your face. Um, the Sony does that sort of low noise, low ISO kind of noiseless night shooting better than anybody. Uh, so it really was the highlight protection, although it did a great job with making, you know, we were shooting right into the, you know, rising sun firing straight down the lens and it looked quite filmy. But yes, absolutely, another, another, a little bit more sort of details and gradability in, in the highlights and, you know, and a cannon mount really, not much, <laughs> not much else, which you can, you know, pretty much do for um, uh, the F3, although, you know, it being a manual mount. Pretty much, pretty much, just you know, highlight really. Which so I think that sort of fills out, fills out that that gap. I think obviously what it does need is that you have to have a outboard recorder, and cables, and you know another set of batteries to charge. Which but, does make uh, it a little bit bulky. Yeah, it does. I mean, the camera itself isn't sort of tiny, but it is sort of light, and you know you can pick it up quite easily. The lens is frequently the heaviest thing in your hand, but um, it's. Uh, you know, I guess that's a small price to pay for essentially what's probably going to be a couple of grand for a recorder. Um, probably the cheapest. Would you probably be able to get away with the, um, oh, what was that one? The Convergent um, Gemini? Would that do 444? That that's a good question, actually. What and the I will, cheapest, what is yeah. the cheapest 444, you know, I think that recorder? wouldn't it be the, um, when it comes out, the Black Magic? Because that's like 350 Fifty ah, HDSDI. Right. Yes, right. That's a good question. And slot I'll... in your own hard drive or SSD. Oh, yeah. Slot in your own SSD. So yep. essentially, probably about eight hundred bucks for an SSD with the rechargeable battery on the back. SDI. Mm, that was another cracker from the show. But uh, again, all right. Well, go over there. If you want to see Jason's stuff, uh, actually, Compulsion is up somewhere. Uh, they can. Yeah, you can probably go to any any sort of uh, Sony F3 page usually. I think links back to it, but it's probably on uh, jasonwingrove.com or vimeo.com slash wingrove. That should be there. But again, that's pre-production camera. Literally about 10 minutes in my hand before we actually shot with it. And, uh, uh, you know, not not 444 or anything, just purely shooting to SYS card. And actually all of that footage is not even 1080. It's actually all 720p because I shot... Foolishly shot it all, uh, apart from a couple of lines of dialogue, it's all at 60 frames a second. Okay, so that's also discussed at length in uh, our Red Center or RC show number 76. So what I'm going to do now is talk to Tyler and the guys who were shooting basically with the same camera, now modded. Jace, what's that mod worth? A couple of grand, is that right? Uh, I, I think, it is. think the price is still TBA, but uh, still remember okay. to be about three grand. Okay, and so I believe it is going to be a you-can-do-it-yourself kind of thing. But it's not, a, it's not an insignificant upgrade. Um, all right, let's talk to that. Let's cross that interview now. And I'm joined on the line by my good friend, Tyler. How are you, Tyler? Hey, Mike. How are you doing tonight? Now, you've got some friends of yours sitting there. Um, Absolutely. In, uh, w- w- explain to us where we are and who's with you. 
We're in uh, New York City, just got back from Vegas and did some awesome camera tests with the S-Log firmware on the Sony F3, and I got some of my really good friends from Next Level Pictures, Jonathan Borrego, Khalid, and Brad here with me. And uh, we're just staying up all night long for the, like, what is it, the second or third all-nighter in a row? Third night. <laughs> cutting, uh, <laughs> cutting behind the scenes in the final trailer and putting everything together to, to release this stuff tomorrow, so... I have to say, one of the really nice things about uh, the Vegas experience is it brought to light that kind of communal uh, aspect, which, of course, you guys are really tapping into because to do these tests that you've uh, just published, it really is a collaborative effort, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we had less than 10 hours from the time that we got pitched the idea to taking all the gear, getting everything coordinated. Brad and everybody else came together, John, Khalid, Timor, um, Chris Dow said, I mean, I could go on and on with a list of names and sponsors that help put this together, but as you know, Mike, it's no easy feat. I mean, John, you want to cover a little bit about like what, what it took to pull this off last minute like that? Ugh, man, I mean, we got on the floor at NAB. We had about four, I think maybe three hours to go around to the hundreds of booths. Um, we hand-selected about six of them, you know, Abel Cinetech, Ingenue, Zeiss, Cook, all of our favorite brands that we use in the industry. Miller, Kessler. Yeah, Miller, Kessler, all these and um, it, it, we, we had three hours to convince these people to give us their prototype products, which is not something that's not easy to do. And half these people honestly didn't even know who we were. Ingenue, well, that was the yeah. first time anybody's tested their glass. It was like their Steadicam op had, had uh, opt for me in Vegas on a shoot once. And it was all word of mouth pretty much and online networking that allowed us to pull this off, which is pretty, pretty inspiring. Well, let's set the stage for this because the F3 has been a bit of a tearaway camera. It's, uh, it's basically punching way above its weight. And it's doing so in various tests uh, that we saw in Vegas and just from shooting with it. Certainly, we've shot here with it in Sydney and we really liked it. But up until now, we've all been shooting with it without the addition of the S-Log. Um, do you guys want to run through, because uh, the S-Log isn't released yet, is it? Yeah, the S-Log's not supposed to be out until late summer. So these guys got... You know, they, they went and asked Abel Cine and they were good enough to let us go do a real test, not just like, you know, talking about it. But yeah, Cleve, do you want to kind of hit up on, you know, because I know you saw the camera shootout as well as myself and Mike. Yeah. Kind of hit up what we saw the Sony. It's, it's pretty incredible what it can do without S-Log. And then now with Wisto, it's it's really remarkable where it fits. Yeah, we actually sat in on the, um, on the camera shootout and they were comparing like a wide variety of cameras, anything from like the high end, like Alexa, Red MX. To everything down to like DSLRs from like 75D, 1D Mark IV, even like the D, is it the 7000? Yeah, the 7000 they had, yeah. Um, then they had the F35 and the F3 and the, um, was it, it wasn't the HPX, it was the, um, the, the AF, AF, AF yeah, the AF100. Garbage and, camera. Yeah, <laughs> we're not really impressed with that camera at all, but um, making a long story short, the F3 held up really, really well. I mean, it, it, it was. Everybody that was in the room with us watching it were always saying, wow, this is really impressive stuff. And, and that was just, just with the EX codec, right? Yeah, that's yeah. just standard um, S by S XD cam 420. codec. Yeah, and, and it's ne 4.2.0. And needless to say, the people that were in the room with Khalid and I were, you know, uh, James Neilhouse, who shoot DPs, all the IMAX films, Tom Lowe from Timescapes, like... Tom all, Gilmet. Yeah, Tom Gilmet. All these massive names in the industry and all these guys were just blown away with the F3, the native codec. So, yeah. so in comparison to like S-Log, I mean, it's a huge difference. We 
Points. We were looking at it. it it's, I would say it's, it's definitely two, possibly even three stops of additional latitude, which is which is mind blowing for a camera that's under twenty thousand dollars. Now we should point out that the S Log is an optional uh, thing. It's not like it's a firmware upgrade. It's not like it uh, comes free. You can mm-hmm. uh, get the S Log if you decide to, and if you decide to, it's going to cost you a few thousand dollars. But already, I'm sensing that you guys think that might be money well spent. <sighs> Yeah. yeah, I think it's very well spent. I mean, it's thirty five hundred dollars, but if you if you do the math, um, the cameras I think it's a little bit under or a little bit over fourteen, and then with an additional thirteen fifty, that's under twenty thousand dollars. Thirty five hundred, I thought. Yeah, thirty five hundred. Yeah, it's um, still under twenty thousand dollars, which is getting you latitude up in the in the decimal. It's not the quite Alexa. Latitude. It's not quite Alexa, but it's it's getting close. And for the price range, I think it's really yeah. remarkable what you can pull out of this camera. Yeah, I think what's interesting is how well, even before the S-Log, it was standing up in comparison to the F35, mm-hmm. uh, a camera it had no right to stand up well against, um, but obviously from the same stable, so it had a, a sort of a similar kind of look to it. But as I say, all of that, and all that testing was pre the S-Log. Now, uh, for those people that don't know, do you want to explain what an S-Log is and how it's fundamentally different from just um, a baked-in gamma codec? Uh, I think that's something that Timor should probably answer, just because he's <laughs> yeah, so much more educated. Yeah, we can get Timor to kind of, but in, I mean, yeah, he should probably, yeah. kind of not. All right, let me answer it then. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Mike. Okay, so those people that don't know, the the reason why the S log is so significant is that um, the way that the file is distributed, it's basically giving you more latitude where you want it, which is uh, why, you know, traditionally DPX files and Cineon files have been log files. And so this basically turns the camera from being something that you would think of as uh, a point and shoot, it kind of opens it up to not only doing that, but also obviously being able to go for a more filmic look. And I think that's important because you guys decided to test it, not by pointing it at test charts, but actually shooting some filmic looking stuff. Now, I guess my first question is, (laughs) at such short notice, how did you find the models? Well, actually, um, my good friend Robert Starling, who's a Steadicam operator at the Ingenue booth, he's a, he actually introduced us to the people at Ingenue, and the one girl was actually the model at Ingenue, this beautiful French girl, uh, African-American girl. So um, that was perfect. And then uh, Her our hourly rate was 1000 bucks an hour. Yeah. And we got her for free. <laughs> well, we so didn't we, pay. We didn't, we didn't Ingenue. but Ingenue did, and that was awesome of them to hook us up like that because she was awesome. And then to contrast the African-American girl, our producer Brad Burke, uh, one of his best friends in Vegas, using that resource, uh, brought over one of his good friends who was a dancer and model to uh, volunteer her time, which was very much appreciated. That was one of the biggest challenges is, you know, you, these guys all know everybody in New York City. I mean, Brad knows so many people, but to go out to Vegas where we, you know, all the connections we have is through, like, you know, production connections, but not actual location and model connections. And there's so not that, much going on in Vegas. No, <laughs> so production literally we were on the phone throughout. I mean, Brad, you want to talk a little about that? I mean, just, just planning according hourly by hour, hour by almost minute by minute, locking yeah. in limos and vehicles and logistics. The hardest part, too, because most people were already booked up for NAB. So it was a challenge getting gear and, you know, especially getting talent because everyone was, you know, booked up. And the resources there were hard because we really don't know the territory. And everyone worked together and pulled it off in, you know, 10 hours. So it was great. But I think it is important because, quite frankly, uh, I don't think most of us are in the industry, uh, in the industry to shoot test charts. Most of us are in the industry to tell stories. And so it's really great to have some comparisons where you've got something that looks narrative drama that you can really, you know, tell what it's going to look like. Now, 
you shot some of this stuff at night. You shot some of this stuff in the day, as you say, with different um, uh, nationalities or, or uh, origins from the girls. So they had different tonality to their skin. And it seemed to be that uh, the most striking thing is just how much that S-log was enabling you to grade it to look more cinematic and maintain stuff into the highlights. So a key part of this is that an S-log format is something that screams out to be graded. So you guys did that, what, on DaVinci, is that right? Yes. Yeah, the resolve. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest points is, you know, once you switch over to S-log, you have to grade this footage. It's just a, it's a must. And that's one, of the, that's one of the things that we've tried to make a good point of in the behind-the-scenes video that we're going to post is, you know, there's nothing wrong with shooting with, you know, EX Kodak for certain things, for documentary work and, like, me coming in the military stuff. But uh, there's definitely a place, and I think it's great that this camera can be modular and, and you can, you know, upgrade with a firmware to enable, you know, shooting high-end cinematic quality footage and, and have, that, have that capability to grade in post. So it's really just having both in one is, is pretty powerful. And the other thing that makes this camera really interesting to so many people is the fact that you can put PL glass on it. Um, you obviously mentioned some of the people that you spoke to, like Cook, uh, like Ingenue and stuff. Um, so I guess the we thing is... Uh, got to pl- sorry, sorry, Mike, I just had to say we got to play with that 8R that you guys had out in Australia with Stu, and that is one sick lens as an incredible <laughs> piece of glass. If by sick you mean highly desirable, uh, then yes. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> um, and so I guess my question to you is, uh, from a DP's point of view, what did you rate the camera at? And uh, what was the sort of range of the glass? Because I know you had some Master Primes, but you also had uh, Pancras, which are obviously 2.8 versus the 1.3 on the Master Primes. You mean, you mean rate the camera in terms of like ISO? ISO, yeah. It was, we were shifting everywhere. I mean, we were, we were at its like, uh, native like 800, and then we shifted up to, like, in the nighttime stuff was definitely 3,200. And then we went down to like uh, like 400 at some points, but we were kind of all over the place. But we tried to do a little bit of everything really to to, to kind of show this like kind of the ups and downs of the camera. But even at 3200, I think it's much much more impressive than uh, than like DSLR stuff. I mean, we I, I've done some tests with just its native codec with at 3200 with my 5D, and and this stuff just looks so much better shot on the uh, F3 than it does in my 5D. So was there much 3200 in the clip that you posted? Yeah, yeah. I would say almost all the night stuff was at 3200. Really? Yeah, almost all of it. Now, was it Tom Wong who was the uh, Da Vinci colorist on it? Yeah, he was. Did he deploy any noise reduction on that? No noise reduction at all. It was was a very, very simple grade. And and the only reason why we did grade the um, S-Log stuff and not the XD cam stuff is because I mean, they say it right off the bat. Sony says it. When you're shooting S-Log, it's not something that's very client-friendly. So clients that don't know cameras and don't know codecs aren't going to look at it and say, this image looks amazing. But DPs are kind of but, used to the standard of, of... But by the same token, it's going to give you more latitude in a film sense to save your butt if you get the exposure wrong. Now, speaking from personal experience, having shot uh, recently in New Zealand where we were out hanging out the side of a chopper and getting exposure was difficult... Did you have any instances where the exposure maybe wasn't on the money and you found that S-Log provided you with grading latitude to bring it back in? Uh, well, we actually we did a couple tests on purpose where we overexposed the key light. They aren't actually in this test, but um, we'll post some clips online later in the week where we overexposed the key light by like one and two and five stops. And then being able to see that come back in like we didn't do any test charts, but being able to see it come back a couple of stops to maybe even three stops, we don't know, was pretty mind blowing, I thought. 
Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about 444. That's the highest color space available right now. So I'm sure we can bring back a ton of highlights if we wanted to. I mean, it's we, we definitely we definitely did some stuff where we we would shoot it one stop under, one stop over, two stops under, and then two stops over. And this is something that we want to post a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I mean, you guys will definitely be able to see it at some point. Let's discuss the ergonomics of it for a second, because once you go into this realm, you really are being able to shoot, as we say, very cinematically. Um, and you've stacked some, let's face it, that 8R you mentioned, that's not a particularly small lens. Um, how did you find it in terms of working with the camera? Because this camera, you know, really, um, you're sort of taking it from a, where it used to be, which is obviously great for interviews and a bunch of stuff, right into this heavy-duty film world. Did it feel like it was uh, strong enough, you know, rigid enough? well set up enough for doing this kind of work? Well, Able Cinetech had it set up with the um, Element Technica handle, which was really awesome. Right. It had like a ton of different mounting solutions. So we were able to mount the, uh, the Cinetech Extreme to it. We were able to mount like... Um, um, what TV Logic. Yeah, the TV Logic monitor to it. So um, in terms of rigging, I think there's a ton of like um, rigging solutions to it, but... Overall, I think for, for the helicopter stuff, it was a bit too much. We started kind of like breaking the camera down. Like we pulled the, the map box off. We pulled the follow focus off and kind of had a little bit more of a, like a run and gun kind of camera. Yeah, that, that map box can act like a real sail on a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> I see well, everybody. yeah. Unfortunately, we couldn't even roll with the doors open. Vincent Lafrette was a little, you know, it was, it was one of the situations. But was, we were able to break. I think, you know, it was interesting because we had the camera everywhere from being handheld to on the back of a... You know, you guys were rolling you around on a wheelchair mm-hmm. and, you know, up on tripods, on sliders. Mm-hmm. And we were literally running gun with this camera all night, kind of like we were almost with the Epic mic, except obviously a lot more a lot more heavy. So we had to have people. My buddy Jeff Levine was out there helping with lens support and rigging and getting things set up. And I think everybody in the crew was just helping each other out. Um, I, one more point. I think what's really going to change this camera to make it more uh, user-friendly for the S-Log is we're, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of very small and lightweight um, uncompressed recorders because like the main thing for me was having this Cine Deck on there. However, it's great. We shoot a ton of documentary stuff, and it's just it's too big for our documentary stuff. So mm. I think we're really going to start seeing these really small, almost iPhone-sized uncompressed recorders here in the near future. Yeah, I mean, philosophically, it's... Um... It's interesting whether or not you want to go with that uncompressed recorder with or without a built-in monitor. Um, and I think the one you had had a built-in monitor, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, it did. Which kind of was, adds to the weight a bit. Yeah, not necessarily we needed yeah, that I think at all. That was actually one of the big things at NAB this year. I mean, last year you barely saw any recorders. I mean, they released a Synodec last year at NAB, and I barely even heard about it. But this year, it's like the, we, we have the, the AJA Key Pro Mini, we have the Gemini, we have the Synodec. We have all types of different types of recorders that are kind of enabling the cameras to go into ProRes now, uncompressed, 444, um, Cineform, which is amazing. You know, I mean, you're definitely seeing a whole lot, way more recorders this year than you ever have been. And the yeah, other- not, being, not being unkind or anything, but with the, with the absence of a decent manufacturing plant for SR tapes, I think that's just going to get accelerated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. The other thing, Mike, me and Khalid and John were ta- and Brad were talking about last night is the other thing we saw much more about NEB than we have in the past is a lot more cameras doing great latitude. And obviously the Red Epic with HDRX and uh, the Lexa. Now, you know, I think the Sony F3 is stepping up to the plate with, with this S-Log feature we were able to test. And I think that's really finally the manufacturers, I think, are moving in the right direction, getting away from the megapixel race and into latitude. And yeah. I, that, that's really what 
good filmmakers want. I mean, I know you can hit on that, John, like you were talking about last night, about what you want as a DP and uh, director. Yeah, I mean, uh, do, do you want me to talk about that, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, my main thing is, like, up till now, yeah, we fed that ridiculous shallow dip the field, which everyone was excited about for two years, and now that's getting kind of old. Now we're learning that we need to control our highlights and our shadows a lot more in our images to make them look more filmic. So basically this, this S-Log thing, uh, what it's going to do is we're going to be able to shoot in like documentary scenarios and running gun scenarios where lighting isn't always at hand. And we're going to be able to control our images so much more, which is going to be such an advantage to documentary shooters. Um, and I, I think it's, it's just going to change the industry like crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because uh, it comes down to quality of light, and that latitude lets you have a lot more options because uh, you don't have to be breaking out the big lights to get a nice quality of light to uh, to get what you want. Um, so let's talk about the just the F three in terms of a, an option. If uh, I could just go around each of you and succinctly just ask you, what is your kind of ideal job that would land a script on your desk that you would go, oh, you know what, we should use the F3 with the S-Log for this, because this would be... Now, I know you could answer with 50 things, but, but just pick your top thing, that if this script landed on your desk, and you picked it up, read it, you went, you know what, we should shoot this on the F3 and S-Log. Yeah. Start with you, Tyler. Uh, I would say anything overseas where it's like these guys were talking about with, you know, really bright sunlight. Even the documentary we just did for Collaborative Film, where you have... I mean, we had the AF-100 out there, but oh my goodness, well, we, I would love to have this just with the, the snow and the reflections. And I know um, uh, uh, Kurt from Brain Farm, we, we talked a lot at NAB, and he's shooting a lot of Alexa out there just because he needs that dynamic range, and he's thinking about Red Epics and things like that. But I mean, I think it's interesting that you could throw a Red, Ep- Red Epic, which you know has you know, a, a huge place in, the, in this industry where you're going to have 5K, you're going to have 120 frames per second, you're going to have, you know, raw recording and all this great and HDRX and all this great stuff. But do you really need five epics on, on a set or do you need five epics on a documentary? You could have one of those to get all your A camera and all your main shots and then throw some of these Sony F3s with S-Log to, just to match and for a quarter of the price. I think it's really interesting. And there's nothing else that really touches in this market. It's kind of in between DSLRs on the low end up to all the way up to epics and Alexa's on the high end. And now we have a middle ground that kind of competes and is able to, uh, to to stand its own. I don't know. What do you think, John? Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is cinematic documentary and corporate video, um, where a lot of times we're placed overseas in these conditions where um, we don't have these big lights. We're in the middle of the desert. We're in the middle of some tribe in Africa. We don't have these massive lights, so the problem is getting your key light and exposing for your background. Now we have two, maybe three more stops, so that right there is going to benefit us documentary filmmakers in massive, massive ways. Um, Kali, what do you... What do yeah, you I mean, I definitely can't say anything that these guys haven't touched on. It's just, this is honestly, look, uh, I can't say it enough. It's the most amazing tool for an independent filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be anything from, like, lower-budget music videos, like documentary, how these guys just said, to even, like, medium to high-budget commercials. There's no reason why you shouldn't shoot with this camera. I mean, it's, it's definitely competing with Alexa and MX. It might not be just as good but it's definitely up there a, a few years ago we weren't we were struggling for a shallow depth of field with 35 adapters i mean now it's like the whole shallow depth of field race is over the pixel race is over that's what we were talking about the excuses are over you can't yeah. make excuses you got to go find a camera and just go shoot with it and even if it is a dslr it's not knocking 5ds or anything like that because 
I mean, you can go out there and still learn, like John said, great lighting, how to control your shadows and highlights, learn all the fundamentals. I mean, this is just another piece of gear. We just wanted to go out and show like what it could do. I know. What do you, what do you think, Brad? Yeah. I mean, this, this camera is just so versatile now. It, it you know, can really compete with anything. Mm. The, because we touched on there without the SLRs, and of course it's obviously more expensive than an SLR, um, but it's also bigger than an SLR. Do you think that uh, the pendulum is going to swing back, or do you think that that size and price is still going to, you know, cause people to go, "Oh, it's better," but is it, you know, better to justify uh, the price hike? Plus, I have to use PL glass, and I got all this L series, and it's pretty good. And I mean, you know, what do you guys think? Well, um, I don't think DSLRs are going to die for a while. That's that's my first thing. I think, um, well, Khalid and I actually just DP'd a, uh, a pilot for HBO, and uh, we were using the F3 as our A cam, and we were using the DSLRs as our B cams. And uh, the, like the do- it was a docu-style show, so we're shooting our interviews on the F3s and B cams, DSLRs, but when we have to hop in really quickly to fire up B-roll in these small, constrained locations in a matter of 20 minutes we have to get 50 shots why would you not use a dslr right now um if you went with an f3 that's going to take you you know 20 times longer to get the shots so i think when when time is of the essence dslrs are going to be right there up in the front of the line yeah and if you think about it a dslr is definitely small but when you when you get it to be a working camera it's not so small so but the setup that we have, if you if you need an ND filter, you have to throw a map box in front of it. If, yeah. if you want sound, you have to throw like a mini mixer. You got to put monitoring on it so you can get yeah. your focus. Yeah, there's in a monitor. Yeah, it so starts to go up pretty pretty. It quick. really does. And, way. and F3 has audio inputs. It has an LCD screen. It has um, uh, ND filters, which is like a huge thing. It's not, and it's we keep saying, "Wow, it has all this stuff," but this is so generic. This yeah, is this is like the fundamentals yeah, of what you need really to, shoot, to shoot film. This is how cameras I, should be. And you know, it's the right tool for the right for the right job and I think yeah we're so lucky to live in this generation where we have these tools that are at our you know every day we you know we can get our hands on them but it's still you got to learn you got to know how to use them you got to know which tool to use for which job and that's really what's important to be a successful filmmaker mm-hmm. and to go on with that I mean it's not just about obviously about gear and it's not all about gear when we're talking about making great connections and I think more than anything this was just another opportunity for us all to get together and really kind of work together and I couldn't I wouldn't trade you know it's it might be a camera test but at the same time we all learn so much from each other and we all were able to come together and put something awesome together that will hopefully help the industry learn something new and it's going to bring more opportunities for us and hopefully for other people involved with the project and that's the beauty of collaboration right now there's there's a lot of uh, filmmakers and a lot of ways you can you know big budget films that are out there that are still you know, they involve certain crew members and certain like bureaucracy and politics. But, you know, I think there's just this upcoming rise of collaborative filmmaking that's really going to take off where you bring people that are passionate together and they go make amazing things. And mm-hmm. it's really going to be exciting the next, I think, few years about about the kind of stuff that we've been starting to do. Yeah, here. Absolutely. And how much further can they possibly go? I mean, I remember when we first started shooting, we were shooting on a DV- DVX 100 and we were... Yeah. We would zoom into whatever it was. It was three hundred and shoot wide open. Just <laughs> exactly, to get, just to get some just to get the most depth of field. The, the most the minimum down. shallow depth of field in the world. And then the thirty-five adapters came out, and we were like, "Wow, this is this is a new world." But you need all the light in the world. Yeah. So it <laughs> now, so you don't need light. You have the shallow depth of field. You have the color space. You have the latitude. So what's the excuse now? 
you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, uh, let me congratulate you not only for doing such a brilliant job at uh, showing credibly what can happen with the S-Log on the F3, but also being the only people I know that actually used a wheelchair dolly. Uh, in <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. we walked in there and, uh, and we saw uh, the, the floor was the most impressive thing in the world. It was just the smoothest thing I've ever seen in my life. So we automatically said we have to get a wheelchair in here. So we went to the reception and we... Uh, we asked for a wheelchair, and, and thankfully enough, they had one. Well, somehow, we went into that hotel, and me and Brad, like, Khalid, Khalid's one of those guys where if he sees a space <laughs> that he likes, it's like game over. I got to be there. So he saw that space, and he turns to me and Brad, and he's like, dude, I need to be in this room. And so, like, we turn over, we go to the receptionist and ask as nicely as we can, and luckily, we, we get into that space. And we shoot there, and they were so nice all morning. And then nine o'clock, these two like bodyguard guys like show up right when we're like shutting down. We're like, "What are you doing here?" And I'm like trying to be nice to them and like shake their hand and stuff. And they have one nothing to do. I'm like, "Cleed, get the camera the f out of here right now." <laughs> so, so we wouldn't lose our cars or anything. But I guess that's just kind of the whole I, the whole thing about behind this is just coming together with your friends and going and actually doing stuff and not just talking about it or. Or yeah. reading it online, just go out and do something. We don't like haters. <laughs> I, I don't mind haters. I just love them. According to Stu Mastowitz, haters are going to hate. Yeah, that's, that's what true. he told me. Winners are going to win. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to us, guys. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Well, look, thank you for that. And again, thank you for Tyler for taking the time. But also thanks to um, T-Stop Cinema, to Next Level Pictures. It's a huge – it was this huge kind of gathering of just literally them running around the, the stands grabbing gear and uh, to Cook, to Tyler Mounts, uh, to Miller, Kessler Crane, Wide Open Camera, Abel Cine, Ingenieur, Zeiss, you name it. Um, and they, everyone sort of pulled together for that. So thank you so much. for. There's also a really cool uh, behind the scenes, you know, as Tyler may mention, which is uh, links in the show notes to that. But I think you really obviously then need to really need to see the footage because it is, uh, it is you know, uh, to avoid a sort of cheesy pun, which I just made twice, uh, it's, it really is chalk and cheese. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> So let's uh, let's go now to our equipment quickly. Oh, look, it's very quick little gear roundup because obviously we're starting to head into you know people hopefully going to you know there's a few more uh, epics uh, out in the field and so there's little quick little quick roundup of um, some epic bits and pieces. There's two people who outside of Element Technica and and uh, Red who are starting to make little bits and pieces for Epic. Uh, one first of them is a company called the Wooden Camera, and that's woodencamera.com. And they are, I've got a couple little bits, one of which is actually applicable to Red One. Uh, they have this uh, very little, so obviously once, I don't think sound's enabled yet for uh, Epic, is it, Mike? It's when really that's, close. Yeah, once it's, once it's enabled, obviously we're going to want, apart from having to have a, um, I think sound is obviously going to be enabled before we have the Pro I.O. Uh, module available. So you're going to want to be able to plug in XLRs and record straight to the camera. So Wooden Camera have got a couple of products out at the moment, but um, more rolling out soon. First one is called the A-Box XLR Breakout, which is $199, which is pretty impressive. Actually, now, can, I, just, can I ask you about sim- that? Is that A-Box, that's the thing that goes on the cheese plate, or does it include the cheese plate? It uh, goes on the cheese plate, or but also you can see there on the top it actually has a um, rod mount as well. So you can mount it on a rod, um, or you can mount, bolt it onto cheese plate, or I think you should be able to bolt it right to the the 
bolts on the top of the camera. So this takes the little mic inputs that I have at the front of my Epic. Exactly. And the two 3.5 inch. Yeah, the two 1.8 um, inch 3.5 mil mini jacks at the front and breaks them out to two XLR ins. A very simple little thing to do, but it's very well machined. And, you know, if you want to try and do this yourself, you, you, you know, it's a world of hurt. Uh, so one ninety nine, which I think is pretty impressive that anyone can actually put any piece of equipment out for one ninety nine. So that's um, in this store at the moment. You can sort of pre-order it um, if you have an Epic at the moment. Uh, then obviously, you probably go to the front of the queue, so to speak. But uh, yeah, you can sort of pre-order this stuff. Um, that also, they make a Red One version of that. So rather than say have um, a bigger breakout box that we've seen, or have sort of those little fly leads, they make a a mini XLR to large to large XLR, uh, full-size XLR sort of breakout version, the red one of that. So you can pretty much put that on the rod and, and have full XLRs into the back of your camera, which is nice. Uh, they also do a very little mini a mini cheese plate, which is a much smaller version of that. Obviously, but the thing with the Epic at the moment is that on the top of the camera, uh, the back half of it's got this sort of sloped kind of chimney for the heat sink, essentially. So... Um, wooden camera and I, I'll, the next person I'll come on, I'll get to uh, making these sort of cheese plates, I guess. They sit on the top of that, give you a whole lot more mounting space, but also let the air through, but let you sort of screw stuff into the back of the camera where you can't at the moment, back of the top of the camera where you can't at the moment because of the whole heatsink thing. So they've got a little mini sort of cheese plate thing also at the moment. But uh, again, there's li- links in the show notes to that and you can see pictures of stuff they are developing at the moment, which is a bigger top cheese plate and also like a 15mm or a 90mm sort of rod mount for the, the top of the camera so you don't have to have rods underneath. So, um, uh, again, links in the show notes. Also now, friend of the show, um, Brooke Willard, who's the uh, he's still currently the DIT on Spider-Man, uh, and definite friend of the RC, uh, is starting to get into the gear building business, the fool. He's um, making a really nice uh, top plate and bottom plate and I guess almost like a mini cage, which I suppose is reminiscent of the original Red One cage, which many a Red One user has probably littered in their drawers. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so uh, they have basically like a top cheese plate and then a bottom plate. Now this bottom plate, uh, is, he's going to do something which I haven't seen yet for the bottom plate, which is give you mount points for 15mm lightweight rods. Because just because of the depth, the the height of the camera, the lightweight rods, I guess, which we're all used to with the, in the DSLR world, the rods actually can't go under the camera. They literally would, would go straight into the front of the camera because of the you know the lens to rod height. So a lot of people, and obviously Red themselves, are making 15 mil studio and 90 mil studio brackets for the bottom of the cameras. But this is uh, essentially or more for sort of lightweight run and gun, which, as we know, Mike is Our much preference. more much more suited to this camera. So he has a top plate. Um, I think if you basically if you go to uh, brookwillard.com, then you can have a link to his uh, blog, which at the moment is sort of the best place to ping him and sort of get yourself on the list or order one of these. Uh, he, at the moment, he has the, the top plate, which is um, uh, $450. Now, for $15 extra, he'll put your logo or your name on it, which I think is right, kind of cool. Yeah, um, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I'd say about that, though, is I've got that great red handle uh, that comes out to the left and yep. my LCD. So I'm wondering if that's the, – the, well, there's a 
Well, look at how many extra places to mount that on there. Now, you can put that handle further back if you want, or I'm sure there's. A, looks like there's a place to be able to put the LCD behind that or with the larger bolts bolt through. That's what I was about to say. The yeah. thing about it is the larger bolts, right? Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Just yeah. essentially bolts. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's adding weight and bulk to the camera, but, you know, it's adding practical weight to it. Um, so here's uh, obviously the side... The side, uh, you really have to see the picture of this in the show notes or on Brooke's site to get an idea of it. But essentially, if you imagine a top plate uh, that uh, gives you, you know, cheese plate holes all through the top of the camera, the bottom plate that then lets you have 15mm lightweight rods on, and then side, uh, I guess, side rails that let you sort of screw monitors or whatever you want all along the side or bolt your EVF, your, your bomb EVF, onto the side of the camera. Uh, essentially, that's that. It will all eventually come in a kit, price TBA. But at the moment, what you can buy is the 450, the uh, top cheese plate. Uh, but again, go to his blog and you can sort of go on the list to uh, you know order some of this stuff, which I think is looking really cool. Oh, the other thing with the bottom plate, which is really nice, is that it has um, machined into it the similar, the same um, design of snap plate uh, to work with Red's uh, quick release plate. Okay, which is gorgeous. Um, so we're going to finish up because we've got to get moving, but uh, we wanted to do our Twitter shout-outs. Now, we've got two Twitter shout-outs this time. Actually, well, we've got, got two, but it would be Adam. three, but one of the guys isn't on Twitter. This, <laughs> he refuses uh, to be on Twitter. A, this is a, a bit of a long-winded shout-out. I'm not going to go into the backstory, but, but basically I, lo- I left my uh, phone in a cab in, in Vegas, and at like one or two in the morning, the, uh, these guys uh, rose to my – it wasn't a Twitter challenge. I was just doing a bit of a Twitter whinge about it and uh, they said we're up for an adventure and they basically ran off in a cab to try and find my phone in under the seat of a taxi that I just got out of 15 minutes ago in a parked cab in a car park uh, you know 10, 10 miles from my hotel so through uh, Google Earth and Twittering and DMing and um Screenshots. So I basically sort of talked them down to to where my phone was. Show, my my phone was basically being shown on um, Find My iPhone, and they found it and grabbed it, jumped in a cab and brought my phone back to my hotel. And for anyone who's actually been traveling and you know basically has all their information in their life and everyone's sort of your your basically your lifeline to the rest of the people you're traveling with in your phone. It uh, was an absolute godsend to get that back. So Dan Sturm, um, that's uh, twitter.com slash D-A-N-S-T-U-R-M. He uh, was the ringleader, I guess. Uh, He works for Intel. He's a uh, visual effects supervisor. And Jeff Jeff Caroli, that's uh, Speedman19 uh, on Twitter. And also to not on Twitter, Josh, Josh Miller. Those three guys from Intel are... Dudes, you rock. Appreciate it. And everyone should give them a good follow because you know, they're, they're actually sort of out there working, shooting, VFXing, etc. They're hands-on. They were all at NAB, so appreciate it. Well, thanks so much. And uh, that really was uh, hysterical when it happened, especially you waking <laughs> me up in the middle of the night because you phoned my number by mistake. Ah, yes. What a joy. Um, well, great. Well, thanks so much for being with us. I know everyone's got to fly, but uh, it's great. We obviously, keep the questions coming in the forums. Uh, you can hit Jason at Wingrove on Twitter or Mike Seymour for me. Or just go to FX Guide. It's the best place for me. Uh, yeah. We have to fly, but until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.